This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. I honestly can't even remember, like, what we've done for Toronto episodes of this podcast in years past. I know one time, Richard, you and Mike and I were, like, in a studio in Toronto together, and that was fun. Like, we've used audio from our in-person interviews. Um, Obviously, none of that is happening right now. The Toronto Film Festival is ongoing, um, but it is happening pretty much entirely virtually, including for moviegoers, uh, mostly in Canada, which... I'm curious about, but that's a separate thing. Um, so Richard and I will talk about our virtual TIFF experiences and some of the you know, genuinely great movies we've seen, despite all the the challenges around it. Um, we're also going to talk about Joanna going to the movies and about the Emmys, which are coming up. And then um, in the back half of the episode, I got on the phone with Devon Franklin, who is one of the Academy governors who was really uh, instrumental behind the inclusivity standards that got announced last week. We talked about them briefly. And as we said, we were planning to get into them again. So uh, Devon Franklin really kind of breaks it down for me, which was really exciting. But before we get into all of that, um, real quick, Richard and Joanna, I wanted to give you guys a chance to promote the new season of Still Watching, which is back after summer vacation. And you guys are talking about the HBO series, We Are Who We Are. Tell me about it. Yeah, this is the uh, the new uh, or the first, I guess, Luca Guadagnino TV series, miniseries. It's airing on HBO. It just uh, aired its first episode on Monday night. It you know it takes place on a military base in Veneto, Italy. Uh, it's it centers on so far it sort of centers on this one family, uh, the matriarch of the family being Chloe Sevigny, who's like high up in the military ranks. And it's about her son and them moving to this base, and he's going to meet some other young folks there. And I think we're going to dive into their lives as well. But I haven't. I've, I'm actually like watching this one one episode at a time, so I don't have like much insight beyond that. But it's you know, it's just like another like let Luca Guadagnino take you to Italy. Why not? Uh, but a little, uh, as we discussed on the episode, less like nice dappled sunlight dreamy and more like drinking wine in the middle of the harsh Italian sunlight. Would you say that's Yeah, and then getting sick and throwing up and yeah. 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 It takes a a, a harder look at the uh, (laughs) Italian fantasy of Call Me By Your Name, I would say. Um, Yeah, so it's an interesting, it's kind of a little off the uh, beaten path for us in terms of what shows we cover on Still Watching, which tend to be things you can like theorize about and whatever, really do a deep dive into their history. This is more kind of a mood piece. Um, so we're doing it's a little experiment for us as the show itself is maybe a little bit of an experiment for HBO. So yeah, I, we, we would love it if people would lo- wanted to listen to that. If it's not to your liking, we will be doing a huge show uh, in October, which is another HBO series starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh, uh, Hugh Grant. 
uh, called The Undoing. So, you know. But I say get on the ground floor. Like you're gonna, you're not gonna know any of the in jokes for uh, that series if you don't start listening <laughs> yeah, now. So yeah. it's true. All yeah. of our 2020 <laughs> jokes will go over your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, I think, I think like this Luca Guadagnino experiment, especially for little gold men washers, I really do think that this uh, series is going to be interested. We, the first episode, we spent sort of talking a little bit more about his filmography and sort of what we have experienced from his films and how that sets our expectations for this episode or the series of television. So, yeah, it's always worth worthwhile spending some time with like a great filmmaker sort of experimenting with longer form storytelling so come come listen to still watching where you get all of your podcasts where you're listening to little gold men right now bob on over spend more time with with richard and joanna why not and we're gonna do one episode all in italian so i really have to brush up <laughs> buongiorno principe how did i do <laughs> that, that's it that's the episode yeah Okay, Joanna, now tell us about your experience venturing out into the world to a real theater outside to go see Tenet. I did. I went so far out of my way to go to the movies. Really? Um, How far? I I drove to Sacramento, which is an hour and a half each way from where I live, which is actually not that bad, uh, honestly, compared to, uh, you know, Bay Area traffic makes things usually untenable. But thanks to a pandemic and our state being on fire, there was no traffic. Um, (laughs) But yeah, uh, that was the closest drive-in. There are closer drive-ins to me, but that was the only one playing Tenet was up in Sacramento. I don't really understand the logic of that, but that's okay. Um, And I went on a Monday night uh, just because my friend was uh, available to go with me and we drove up and it was full. The drive-in was full, which I know we've been hearing about that all summer, but I expected like full for Jurassic Park on a Saturday night, not full for Tenet on a Monday night or full or like the screen that's playing Jerry Maguire was full or like whatever, you know, there's like six screens and you can kind of like, if you turn around, you can see what the other screens are playing and stuff like that, which really enhanced my Tenet experience because, uh, <laughs> cause you screen... turn around and watch Jerry Maguire a couple times. Well, <laughs> no, but the, the screen next to ours is also playing Tenet just 20 minutes, uh, like behind us. So like I could Tenet is a very timey wimey loopy movie and I could just like turn to my left and see uh earlier shots of Tenet playing over there over yonder if I wanted to. I loved going to the drive-in. I it was such a good experience. I had such fun the picture was really great. The sound is really great. I know that that's been like a concern for people, but like I think if you haven't been to the drive-in in a while, like they've had some major upgrades. And I really enjoyed, like, I got stressed at first because my friend, like, started talking through the movie. And I was like, oh, my God, we don't talk through the movie. And then I was like, oh, wait, we're just in our car. Yeah, no one cares? can hear us. Uh, so we had a blast. Uh, I had a really good time. I mean, I still, like, don't talk that much. I want to, like, concentrate on the movie. But, you know, Kenneth Branagh is sporting this outrageous Russian accent. And it was just really enjoyable to, like, parrot it back at him. I will just... I will just yes and everything Richard said about the movie itself, which is that it's not great and not because I think I'm too like dim to follow the twists of it, but it's just like it's incomprehensible in places for no great reason. And a lot of it you feel like you've seen before uh, elsewhere. But the experience was really enjoyable to me. And it was nice to feel like, oh, that new movie that like, everyone's yeah. seen. I have seen it too now. What I will say is that I read I read a great piece uh, in The Atlantic by our friend uh, David Sims just sort of about tenants like disappointing. We talked last week about like how well Tenant did considering. Uh, David wrote a good analysis piece about like the second week box office returns and how, you know, a bunch of studios have were looking to Tenant and have pushed their release dates even further back sort of as proof that the Tenant experiment has failed to some degree. Would you guys agree with that uh, assessment? 
Yeah, I mean, it did not do well in its second weekend, you know. I mean, it's all relatively speaking. But to go from, you know, what was it, 20 million domestic to, I think, 6.7 or something, a huge percentage drop. It just seems like interest for this one was not there, you know, with all factors considered. And then other things that people maybe would have been more interested universally, like Wonder Woman 2, have to pay the price because, you know, Warner Brothers needs to make money on on, on Tenet and, and, and sort of prove its viability, I guess. So, yeah, it feels like they maybe didn't think in the long term on this release strategy. Well, isn't it also that, like, not only does Warner Brothers want to give Tenet more room, but like Wonder Woman, they probably won't make as much money as they had hoped because still people just aren't willing to go to theaters the way that they hope they might be for Tenet. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of us looked at Wonder Woman's December 25th new release date and first of all looked at, like, Dune and thought, like, OK, are they also <laughs> going to put Dune out in the same month? And they say that they are. And I seriously doubt that. And also just like whether or not any of the Christmas release dates will will last. Will hold. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's still some... Uh, dates sticking around November, like Black Widow, et cetera. But like everyone just sort of assumes that those will move eventually as well. And I have to wonder, you know, how much... Yes, Christopher Nolan gets people to the theater. Like that is a true fact about Christopher Nolan films. We saw that with Dunkirk and stuff like that. But if uh, Tenet were a better movie, if Tenet were like an incredible movie and I left, you know, if Richard left his screening raving or I left my screening raving, like... We might be telling a different story right now, but it's yeah. it's just not a movie that I would recommend anyone see as anything other than like a, the novelty of going to a movie theater in a way that feels safe for you. If you can manage that, do that, you know, sort of thing. So, yeah. Um, well, maybe as a as a tip transition, I have been looking at uh, what Fox Searchlight is planning for Nomadland, which is one of the big titles at TIFF as well as at Venice. It won the top prize at Venice. And Fox Searchlight had one drive-in screening of it uh, in partnership with Telluride, um, the festival that was canceled uh, this year, but, you know, has a major presence. Um, and it does seem like they're really committed to putting Nomadland out there. And it is, you know, a very different reason from Tenet and Wonder Woman for many reasons. Uh, and primarily that, like, if it doesn't make... million, that's fine. Um, But it is like kind of one of the few things we do have left to look forward to. And Richard, to to get into TIFF in general, I do keep having this feeling of watching these movies, uh, you know, some of which are great, some of which are less so, but like, this is all we got. Like, we better watch these festival movies because after this, we don't know what else is going to come out. Do you feel that kind of like, like peering off a cliff as you watch these movies? Yeah, I think in our our wrap-up conversation that you and I had, Katie, that will be on the site when this podcast goes up, um, you compared it to, you know, drinking as much water in the Oasis as you can before you head back out into the desert. (laughs) And it's so true. Because you normally, you know, we have, yes, New York Film Festival to look forward to, but also like the other scattered November, December releases that didn't screen at festivals like Little Women or 1917 last year, you know, big stuff still looming on the horizon. Now we don't really have that. The Oscars aren't for another six months. Like seven, it's just, seven months. Excuse it's me. Seven outrageous. months. Good Lord. <laughs> um, but, you know, so yeah, it does feel like, oh, we've reached the, uh, you know, what's that Shell Silverstein where the sidewalk ends? Like we, <laughs> we, we've gotten to the end of the road here and I don't really know what else to do. The release calendar for the fall is so strange. Um, it doesn't even feel like they have like vast reserves of like on-demand movies to release. I feel like, I don't know. I So, so yes, I have been hungrily savoring, let's say, the uh, the offerings that um, TIFF made available. And um, it's been pretty nourishing, I would say. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. there have been a couple things I didn't really connect with, but for the most part, like, pretty worthy stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess we should maybe start with Nomadland, which I think is both the best movie I've seen at TIFF and probably the most celebrated so far. Um, like I said, it won the top prize at Venice. I wouldn't, I don't, like, there is going to be a TIFF audience award. I 
can't honestly predict what that would look like. But uh, it, it is kind of it has what you would maybe expect from an audience award winner, too. Like it is very realistic. It's about kind of like grim circumstances and people you know, being laid off, towns disappearing in the West, like people without much. But it's also really warming in some ways. It's like about people connecting with each other under unusual circumstances. It's Frances McDormand playing this woman who's kind of a... Um, has chosen a nomadic life after her husband dies and the company that made her entire town function um, closes down. And the people that she interacts with, including David Strathairn, looking really excellent. Like, I was not expecting mm-hmm. him in this movie. My goodness. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, it's like a, it is both a clear-eyed look at some, you know, pretty rough circumstances people find themselves in and also, like, heartwarming in a way, which I think is a, a big part of why I felt so hard for it. Yeah, it, it really delicately balances... Being, you know, in a broader, more like sociological sense about economic displacement, um, other kinds of displacement that American people feel in this case, kind of people, um, you know, in their golden years who are either living on little pensions or like like Francis McDormand's character, Fern, scrambling in, in terms of like short term itinerant work. And so it's cognizant of all the kind of harder realities of those. But it also, you know, affords these people, many of whom are actually living this life in real life, who also appear in the film, the many graces of like, they enjoy the beauty of the scenery, they enjoy their moments of connection with each other, they, they, they've they chosen to live off the grid, some of them, um, you know, how much of that really was a choice? And how much was that, you know, them being forced by economic circumstances? Who knows? It's individual for every person. So yeah, it, it really, it, it's not a tragedy. It's not glossing over anything. It just really walks a really smart line down the middle. And I think that's such a testament to the way that Chloe Jaw works uh, in general, and also how well, you know, if she's going to work with the big movie star for the first time to get someone like McDormand, who already had a passion for this particular project, and I think was interested in making the kind of film that Chloe Jaw wanted to make. It just works so seamlessly. And I think that like, if I were another actor of some, of McDormand's stature, or maybe less so, uh, I would be scrambling to find my own Chloe job because mm-hmm. it's amazing what can result when there's such a perfect symbiosis between star and director. Yeah, but it's also easy to imagine a lot of actors who would take who would steal the spotlight in a way that Frances McDormand doesn't in this. Like, you don't oh, ever yeah. forget that she is a movie star in this, but so much of it is about watching her, like, listen to people and connect with them. And, like, you know, she's interacting with non-actors who are, like, in some ways just being themselves. And she's so able to, like, be present in that space and not make it about her. Um, That's really admirable. Yeah, it's not showy. And I think that... I, in a way that I thought her work in Three Billboards was sort of show. Yes, definitely. You know, and granted, that was the fault also of Martin McDonough's writing and direction. But you know, she not that not that an actor always has to be humble, and especially an actor, you know, a female actor. Like, but you know, she gets out of the way of the movie while being a, a, a vital part of it. Yeah. Um. It just yeah. It feels really. Um, this is such a loaded word, but it feels pure in a way. Mm-hmm. Um. And and granted, there are some maybe tetchy stuff with Amazon because they did collaborate with them in terms of, you know, Amazon let them into a fulfillment centers. And, and I, I don't know how hard the movie wanted to go anyway on, on, on Amazon's labor practices. But, um, you know, there are little qualms I had with the movie when I wrote about it, but for the most part, it does feel very genuine, which, um, uh, felt really refreshing right now. Yeah. Joanna, I assume that Nomadland is the festival movie that like has broken through the most for people who are not necessarily attending these festivals. 
Yes, as your representative of someone from outside <laughs> the real Richelton. world. Yeah, salt of the earth, Bay Area, California. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think No Man Land is the is the one that's on the top of most people's lists uh, in terms of things they're dying to see. I have to say, like overall, I mean, like I, you know, I want to hear you guys do this for the rest of your highlights. I don't want to derail this, but I am um, I'm curious if like however much award season feels divorced from the everyday film goer, how much more it might seem divorced. Um, you know, you guys get to see these great TIFF titles. Some people saw some Venice titles, et cetera, et cetera. Like, when is when is the everyday folk going to get to see Nomadland? You know what I mean? Like, that's a question we all have, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing that I'm telling myself is that regardless of COVID and whether we were on the ground or not, um, although I would argue that, you know, something certainly was lost by not having people on the ground in Toronto. This is two months before one of the most significant U.S. elections ever, <laughs> and <laughs> I and I think that people would have been distracted anyway. And mm. um, I have noticed just anecdotally, like min, like diminished engagement with stuff that I've posted from Toronto and sort yeah. of Venice, um, which maybe just be you no know, people don't care about me <laughs> or what I have to say <laughs> no. about movies, or it could just be a general thing uh, or both. But yeah, I, I think I said, Katie, to you, and I, I think you agree that like. One thing that that you lose by not having the festival in person is, and sometimes you know we're we we're part of this can be bad about like shooting down a film before it's really had a chance to breathe, but also like highlighting certain performances or actors or directors or whatever in conversation from a festival that then gives that movie uh, some more momentum and that it really has not been able to kind of we haven't been able to recreate that uh, virtually. Yeah, you specifically mentioned uh, Kingsley Benadir, who is in uh, Regina King's One Night in Miami, playing Malcolm X, who is, you know, in the, in the conversations I've had, like, on Slack and Twitter with other people who have seen these movies, like, kind of the replication of the post-screening chatter, like, everyone seems to agree is the real breakout. And I can't help but think of Regina King when she was in If Beale Street Could Talk, which premiered at Toronto, and kind of as soon as that screening ended, like... Her name got the most applause in the credits, and I was like, "Oh, okay, that's an Oscar campaign starting." And and I think Kingsley Benadire could it should really rocket out of this film. He really seems like a huge star, but I don't think it's gonna be the same. I don't think it gets that same boost of energy um, that he really deserves. Yeah, I mean, it's a testament to the power of people seeing something at the same time, you know. Yeah. And and granted, once these movies are out, all kinds of people are going to see it at different times and you know in different circumstances, of course, but. It really helps for these films to have, and these performances like um, his, to have at least some little collective moments throughout the next, well, seven months where people gather to celebrate the performance or the film. And we're not really going to have that, which could mean it's, like we said uh, last week, more fair for smaller movies that don't have the budget to do campaigns, but also might mean that certain less obvious stuff gets lost in the in the in the shuffle yeah um you want to talk about any other uh performances i mean joanna you mentioned before we started that you were curious about vanessa kirby um and and pieces of a woman that i mean that seems to me you know from my outside looking in sort of well i know i know i'm an i'm an insider but um like you know in terms of what's permeated this this vanessa kirby out of venice narrative really seems very strong so i'm wondering what you guys think 
Yeah, I, so I, re- I reviewed Pieces of a Woman for us, and I found it, as I think a lot of people did, um, found her performance really impressive in this kind of one crucial scene, um, almost at the very beginning of the movie, of a childbirth that goes really horribly wrong. Really impressive and moving, and, you know, as someone who has, has had children, like, both realistic and, and devastating. Um, and the rest of the movie kind of struggles to, to live up to that. It's a little, the script kind of can't handle the emotional high of that, maybe with good reason. Uh, although Vanessa Kirby and uh, Molly Parker, who plays uh, the midwife involved, is, are both really good in it. But I think the narrative around her, like, again, seven months till the Oscars, who knows what's going to happen. But, like, she kind of is, like, the perfect stepping stone point, right? Like, she was so great on The Crown. Um, Princess Margaret was such an indelible character. Her role in Pieces of a Woman is um, it's different. You know, as a modern person, it's, you know, someone who's, like, not quite the same regal, although she wears amazing clothes. Um, it's, you know, she kind of has everything in place to to ride that through. And also, she had another woman, another um, movie at Venice. God, was it called The End of the World? No. At- no, The World to Come. I get it wrong every time. Um, And that film doesn't have um, distribution yet. Pieces of a Woman got picked up by Netflix. But, you know, when you have two uh, movies where you're really good in it, it it doesn't hurt to to keep that narrative going. Yeah, and she had a third movie at Toronto. Did she really? uh, That she's in with um, James Naughton from Happy Valley and Peter Sarsgaard, I believe. But it was already reviewed in the Times, like, last summer, I think. So I don't don't really know why why it was a tiff. But, but yeah, Kirby, you know, wins Venice on her way to... A lot more, um, and in those those first thirty minutes of Pieces of a Woman, you're like, okay, here we go, you know. <laughs> but yeah, then the movie, like you said, Katie, it just can never match that incredible twenty five minute single take. Yeah, uh, and I think part of that, and I was tweeting about it because I didn't review it because you did. It has that thing of of of, of tragedy movies that kind of are just about the tragedy and not about the people that they, that it happens to. Like, I don't really feel like I know any of this woman, none of her pieces, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's really frustrating. And it does make me curious what this, what this director and writer, their, uh, um, a part, their partners romantically and in, in, in filmmaking, uh, what they do next. But uh, I was expecting something that was really strong from start to finish and did not get that. Yeah. Um, but would you agree that, uh, you know, awards buzz wise and, you know, we should say the New York film critics announced it, that they'll, you know, or you guys, Richard, will keep the awards in December. So awards are not yeah. quite as horrendously far off as we as we think. And we're not factoring in any of the January, February releases. It's all just we're doing what came out in 2020. Are you nervous uh, about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's good to stand firm in a principle. I mean, the National Board of Review is is waiting till end of January to announce theirs and they're considering yeah. all of those other movies. So we shall see. Uh, I have I have fears that like certain things like Nomadland will end up being pushed to next year and then it won't qualify. Um, um, but yeah, in terms of Kirby, like absolutely. I think the thing about it is that this is a movie that because of its subject matter, yes, it is difficult, but it talks about a fairly universal thing, which is, you know, having a child uh, that it will f- maybe feel accessible to people uh, in all strata of the Academy um, mm-hmm. and people like a kind of rising star narrative. And so, I don't know, I just feel like all the component parts suggest that this movie uh, or her performance at least uh, will stand the test of time. And she's de- definitively lead in it. Oh, oh yeah. 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 No, no. She is the yeah. woman that it is pieces oh, of. The titular woman. <laughs> the titular <Excellent>. role. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. What, what else? else? What? Yeah. What else, Richard? Uh, well, I I don't know how I don't know how awards it is. It's probably not. It doesn't even have distribution yet. But this movie by Jay Blakeson called uh, "I Care a Lot" with Rosamund Pike, uh, I thought was so much fun. 
this dark, nasty, twisty little thriller uh, where Pike plays uh, a very amoral operator who has found all these loopholes in uh, basically become a court-appointed caregiver for old people and then just basically rob them blind. Like, mm-hmm. sell their house because she has authority to do that and drain their bank accounts because she has authority to do that. And it all is sort of legal. So it starts as that kind of, like, cold satire and then becomes this mob story in a way um, that's also really interesting. And throughout, Pike is just, like operating on such a fun cool level you know she's done really good stuff i think since gone girl but it's been little seen like a private war or hostiles but this feels like the real follow-up role to gone girl Uh, it's in a similar vein she's photographed similarly in it i believe the first shot in i care a lot of pike is of the back of her head and then she turns quite like in gone girl Mm. um so they're not really even shying away from the similarities but to see something amidst, you know, 25-minute horrible birth scene mm-hmm. and, you know, economic ruin in the American West, to, to see just like a really propulsive, funny, yes, also cruel thriller uh, was a nice uh, respite. And I didn't see it coming. I didn't really have any expectations for that movie. And they were well beyond exceeded. I feel like I had a similar reaction to a, a very different movie, but uh, Concrete Cowboy, which I didn't really know what to expect. Yeah. I knew it was based on a young adult novel. It's got Idris Elba on a horse, which, you know, as soon as you've seen that press image, you're like, oh, okay, Idris Elba, you've belonged on a horse this whole time, turns out. Um, but it's this really, like, nice, you know, sort of like a parallel to Nomadland and that it's about this real-life subculture, this, um, you know, urban writing club in North Philadelphia where it's, you know, primarily uh, black men and women who are riding and taking care of horses. And, you know, the image of a black cowboy, I think a lot of people are like, huh, I didn't know that existed. Um, And it made me think of the woman in uh, the Oakland protests in June who was riding her horse with a Black Lives Matter sign and was like, yeah, that's right. You pay more attention to me because I'm a black woman on a big horse. Um, But Idris Elba plays this kind of, like, gruff father and... um, and Caleb McLaughlin, who you know from Stranger Things, uh, plays his son who's kind of sent to live with him for the summer. And, you know, he gets there and he's learning to bond with his dad. And there's a horse who he, like, has a special connection to. And there's a girl who he talks to. And, you know, you kind of feel like you know where this story is going. And for the most part, you do. But the acting is really good. There's these really great performances from, like, real horse riders who are involved yeah. in the real Fletcher Street Club that, um, you know— I was having watched Nomadland, I was kind of attuned to think it might be in there, but I was like, but they must be like local actors because they're really comfortable in front of the camera. But no, they were real horse riders. So that was really impressive. Um, Idris Elba just has like this like great classic cowboy thing going for him. Um, but even, you know, in this different context where he's like a former felon and he's trying to main- help people ride horses as a way to like escape gang violence and, you know, take control of their lives. Um, and I just, yeah, I was really impressed with it. It was an interesting world to escape into. Um, and I don't think it I think it also doesn't have distribution yet, but I would expect that one to show up somewhere pretty soon. And uh, it uh, gives a great supporting role to the great Lorraine Toussaint. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is a fun anytime she pops up in something. It's fun. I agree with you, Katie. I think it it it, it doesn't sort of exploit the niche world it's uh, centering on as a kind of just like gimmick. It actually does go into it. Yeah. Uh, and make it a part of the film, which I, I really appreciate. I, I could have, I think the other half of the story with like Jarell Jerome's character, I probably was less interested in. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. 
that's the part of it where it's like, oh, it's a story set in like an urban, largely black neighborhood, I guess. You know, someone's going to get caught up in like drug dealing and violence. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a real part of life and, you know, makes sense as like a, you know, to show why this horse staple becomes such an important factor in the community. Um, and George Rome's pretty good in that part of it, even though, you know, oh, yeah, he's kind of the so... minute you meet his character, you're like, oh, I think I know what's going to happen to you. He's a real chameleon, that guy. Mm-hmm. And and um, it's he's such a pop of life anytime he shows up on screen. So, yeah, I have no problem with him, his performance. And and even the, the particulars of that side of the movie are handled, you know, subtly. Um, yeah. it's, it doesn't turn into some sort of melodrama all of a sudden. But yeah, um, but yeah no, it's an interesting movie. And I, I, I like that it, again, was really actually interacted with the thing it was about or the setting it was, you know, took place yeah. in. Um, Joanna, anything else you want to know about? No, I, well, one thing I was thinking of, you know, about like, um, I guess was lacking from a virtual TIFF, uh, for, for, for the way in which things can permeate the larger conversation, honestly, is the red carpet. Like, I know that there was a red carpet in Venice, but I know that there's like a lot of people who, who like to watch, you know, the actors that they're interested in watch the walk the red carpet. And when they do, they're like, why is so-and-so there? Oh, it's for this movie that they're yeah. in with this person? Oh, that's mm-hmm. something to think about later. You know what I mean? And it is it is actual promotion for the film beyond like um this person looks hot in this dress or whatever. And and not having that as just a reminder of who are the players this season and what's going on. Just adds to the sort of dissociative feeling of of this particular event you know yeah i mean yeah exactly Sorry, i don't mean to keep like raining on the parade no no No, you're right i mean it's just there are so many ways in which not having an in-person i mean yes it was in person for people local in toronto so i shouldn't discount that there were people going to movies in the city during the festival and still are but you know not having press and all the attendant stuff there um, it you, you forget, like, actually how much of a springboard this thing really is. Yeah. Yeah, I think about um, last year, like, I was walking down King Street, which is kind of the main street in Toronto where the festival takes place, and just heard, like, shrieking from in the distance, and Knives Out premiere was happening. Um, so, like, yeah. Chris Evans or, <laughs> right. you know, probably Chris Evans had just gotten probably out of the car. Chris Evans. And, real, like, yeah. not only is there no red carpet for Chris Evans to walk on, but, like, there's no Knives Out studio movie to come. Like, there's just, n- there's nothing on that scale of, like, larger movies that will be right. coming out later in the fall to kind of bring attention to it, too. Like, you know, there's not even an Uncut Gems level thing. Um, and, you know, these films are very interesting and, and powerful and good, but the the level of attention just can't be the same. Yeah. yeah. I think about, you know, um, maybe the last movie I'll mention, uh, Good Joe Bell, starring Mark Wahlberg from Reynaldo Marcus Green, whose last film had a, a pretty successful showing at Sundance, Monsters and Men. And I think that Good Joe Bell at one point was in consideration to go to Sundance and didn't and then waited for the fall festivals. And now, <laughs> uh, whoops. And I wonder how that would have changed that movie's profile. You know, um, yeah. I think it's a fine movie. And, and you know, I think it, it does some things really well that I, I thought it wouldn't, which is that it it doesn't it doesn't become a kind of schmaltzy, uplifting story. It actually stays pretty grim and um, uh, and unforgiving of its lead character. And Wahlberg, it does something interesting, whether or not anyone wants to actually follow his, you know, perhaps potential redemptive redemption narrative. Who knows? That's for you, anyone to decide. But, you know, you just wonder, like a movie like that with a big star making an Oscar play, it didn't really make any much much noise. It doesn't seem to me. So maybe it would have uh, at a different festival or in a different year. Yeah. Right. 
Um, one last thing I will mention before we move on, and speaking of things that the people will be able to see, um, <laughs> in October uh, on HBO, uh, David Byrne's American Utopia will premiere. Yeah. It's um, Spike Lee's filmed version of the Broadway show um, that you know stars David Byrne. It's a bunch of Talking Heads songs you might know from another concert movie, Stop Making Sense, um, but this one is really wonderfully different. Um, it's so good. It was such a great trip back to a time when there were audiences in real theaters, um, but also like not purely escapist. Like, it's in some ways about like having empathy and engaging with your society and voting um, and such a thrill to watch. I've like already like gone back and rewatched parts of it. Um, so all of you will be able to do the same thing. It'll be on HBO uh, in a month. Oh, that's so fun. You talking about it, Katie, in our wrap up really made me want to see it. And I do not like concert films. Oh, you haven't I seen it yet. I don't really like David Byrne's music. Uh, but I was like, OK, now I, I'm sold. So thank yeah, you for that. You, and and you Jordan gotta Hoffman's give it a review. Shot. Yeah, and Jordan Hoffman's review for us. Was I, th- I mean, awesome. it definitely is a concert movie, but it's like it's a, it's much more of a show than like even Stop Making Sense is. So, um, right. I definitely think you should give it a shot. You can't see it on on the Zoom or recording on right now, but Katie is wearing a large suit in her mm-hmm. podcasting closet. Yeah, it's like David dancing Byrne. within. Yeah, actually, we, my husband and I watched it, and then we have since watched Stop Making Sense. And then last uh. night he was watching The Last Waltz, so it's like really radicalized him on concert <laughs> movies. So be, beware if you watch American Utopia, you might go down a real rabbit hole oh, uh, never I escape. Love that. have i ever yeah, told yeah. my david byrne story on this podcast no, no i want to hear it a friend of mine used to be work for his management company and she invited me to every thanksgiving at their at, at their offices in soho they have for friends and family a competition where they they give everyone a couple weeks ahead of time a turkey mold a plastic like turkey mold <laughs> and you have to fill the turkey mold with food that's like in the shape of the turkey, but it and and then they have like a like it's like a potluck and they taste it and someone wins. Um, wow. I think most of them were vegetarian or vegan. Um, so I went to this and met David Byrne, and then all these like kids were running around and there were all these turkey mold things on a table, and everyone tried a little bit of them, and then there was an award at the end, and then I left. Wow, that's <laughs> so. great, cute. Yeah, New York, what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Okay, it's promised we're going to talk about the Emmy Awards, which are happening on Sunday. Um, At this point, I think nobody totally knows what it's going to look like. Um, You know, we've had all these reasonably successful events happening via Zoom, like the DNC and the RNC and um, the VMAs, uh, lots of acronyms. Um, But the Emmys is going to be really live because it's an award show where, you know, unlike maybe the VMAs, um, they won't tell people ahead of time that they're (laughs) going to win. Um, So I think it's intriguing. Um, I want to talk about who we think might win and everything but what are you guys hoping for from the show itself like some genuine moments um Mm -hmm. uh, like i I want it to run smoothly so i don't want it to be too like lucy goosey or whatever but um you know the the folks will be 
you know, the candidates will be candidates, nominees, sorry, <laughs> the nominees will be zooming <laughs> in, right? And so I would just like to see some fun spontaneity, hopefully maybe from like the comedy nominees, like at home, just to like make, just to brighten our hearts about this weird, ridiculous time we're living through, this hard time we're living through. Um, award shows are at their best, like, you know, something we can all just like, let's just sit around and talk about the things that we loved this last year. And like, if those folks can, you know, I don't want to be like dance from a monkey, but like, you know, if those folks can really like uh, bring it via, via Zoom bit, I would love to see it so yeah it would be it would be nice i have a question about the surprise of it all like in terms of announcing winners Mm -hmm. they're gonna have camera crews at people's houses right yeah that's my understanding so are they sending camera crews to all the nominees houses and then one person wins and then the other four camera crews are like well or five camera crews just have to (laughs) pack up and leave i Guess so. I, I think they, you know, promoted that they have like 150 camera crews like going to be out there, but that's not everybody. I don't think. Although no, I guess a lot of people not. are nominated in multiple categories. Um, I think they also gave some people the option to pre-record an acceptance speech, um, which could be very strange. And if I were asked to do such a thing, yeah. I definitely wouldn't because that's how you jinx it. So, I but I think that's the idea, and it'll be interesting to see how much buy-in they get to make that happen. I wonder if they're going to do. Are they doing any sort of like pod watching? Like, is the cast of Shit's Creek going to be like? <laughs> Hanging out together. Yeah. And you so would think the Levy one. family would yeah. at least uh, be all together. <laughs> and then you only have to send one camera crew over to there. You know what I mean? Uh, um, that's a good point. The most recent season of Drag Race All-Stars, I want to say. I'm becoming a Drag Race person, guys. Mm. Um, <laughs> through no, no fault of my own. Um, the entire season was recorded you know, pre everything. And then, but the finale, which they normally do live had to be done over zoom. And so I think they did pre record some stuff with both of the finalists or all three of the finalists. I forget how many there were. Um, I think they usually do that with drag race that they, but usually it's in a theater and you know, you know, they they, they were at their separate apartments, you know, but then they announced the winner and it's, it did seem organic. What I'm saying is there is a way to do it where the person who doesn't win doesn't seem like a total, you know, sap because they like yeah which so is I, not yeah. what it feels like at the actual emmys so you like it's weird that it would feel that way but i think you're right that it kind of does everything feels different at home uh, i mean <laughs> it's more personal about, at home talking about the Shits creek uh people potting i was just kind of like looking through like what other cast you can imagine getting in the same place together um and i feel like the ozark cast has kind of been known to like all travel in a pack in the similar way to Shits creek um and that made me think about richard the bold prediction you were making um before we started recording you are thinking maybe ozark can swoop in and surprise wow. well i think because We've talked about it before, but because like Julia Garner has won and Bateman won for directing, um, they just announced that next season's going to be its last one in a two, you know, bifurcated way. It just seems to me that people home a lot like that. Ozark feels like a show that people have already been watching, but maybe they gravitated toward even more for this most recent season. There is already institutional support for the show. So that could be interesting just in terms of an upset against Succession, but also because it would be the first time that Netflix has ever won an outstanding series prize, either comedy or drama. They've they've won plenty of other Emmys, but nothing for like n- none of the top ones for you know those two uh, things. So that would be interesting, especially when Reed Hastings uh, from Netflix like, <sighs> did an interview recently where he was saying that like we're still in challenger status or whatever, uh, meaning that he doesn't <laughs> see that they have reached hegemony or whatever, which I kind of disagree with but sure. um i guess from this one minimal perspective in terms of they don't have that that one you know one of those emmys on their shelf this would you know be a kind of 
big thing for them if they if, if Ozark were to win. I will push back slightly on the like Ozark has institutional support narrative only because I think the Bateman win and the Garner win really benefited from the Game of Thrones splitting the categories last year. Like there were what, like three to four other women, Game of Thrones women in Julia Garner's category and then like three different Thrones directors in um, Bateman's category. So like the the way in which the... (laughs) The flood of thrones skewed everything last year is is something to keep in mind. Though I think I mean like obviously a lot of people think Laura Linney's going to win, and I think you're right that if anyone upsets Succession, it's going to be Ozark. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I'm not sure because like Succession Succession pulled out that win in the writing category last year, where there actually wasn't a lot of competition from Thrones. They only submitted like one episode from Thrones, I believe. So like you know I don't know I, I I'm I'm so fascinated to find out what happens in a throne list emmy i can't remember the last well i guess we had that year they skipped there's but that like one year, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah like where handmaid's tale emerged and stuff like that but it, mm-hmm. it, you know it's interesting to see what will happen and also you know don't forget that bateman won best actor at the sags for ozark You're so right, right. there um so i don't know i just feel like if anything's going to upset the, the you're the, right the narrative that we think is going to happen. I think it could be that. Whereas I think Schitt's Creek is going to win in a walk. Like, absolutely no question about that. Yeah. Um, and, like, you know, Schitt's Creek being the predictable winner is kind of wild in and of itself. Um, because, you know, as we've talked about, like, it was just this random Canadian show for so long. Um, but the idea of Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara potentially being, like, his and hers Emmys, like... I'm dying to watch that happen like that. I, I want to tune in to watch that happen. Cute. Yeah. And I feel like Dan Levy is going to be like sort of like the Phoebe Waller-Bridge of this Emmys, right? Just sort of like an anointed, uh, young, exciting talent uh, sort of thing. So. Yeah. I actually hadn't looked that closely at the supporting actor um, comedy category. But yeah, it's like him and then like like Mahershala Ali. I guess you can't count out because he's won two Oscars. Like everyone likes giving him awards. Um, so he might be the closest competition. But yeah, if it's a shit well, no, I was. I, yeah, well, I was thinking more like in terms of writing and, yeah. um, you know, and just and in terms of being the show's creator, the way that like Phoebe Waller-Bridge kept coming up because she was the multi-hyphenate of Fleabag sort of thing, you know? So Yeah. What else? Any other? Yeah, I'm really curious what's going to happen. So like just the way that Thrones sort of um, shot itself in the foot by having so many nominees in various categories, Succession is sort of dealing with that right now. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, there's a big debate whether Jeremy Strong or Brian Cox is going to win the lead actor category. Um, and it feels unclear. And then in supporting, you've got three succession actors um, in the male supporting category. And so a lot of people think Billy Crudup is going to like swoop in for morning show because the, yeah. the other guys are going to split the vote. And, or Giancarlo uh, Esposito, um, who has never won for better Call, for um, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, which is wild. Maybe for some reason, everyone has Billy Crudup as they're like, I don't like there's some sort of Apple campaign that is not touching me because I am not <laughs> seeing how it's happening. But like all the all the predictions I've seen have been for Billy Crudup. And I'm like, you know, Billy, Billy Crudup himself is not really like a maybe it's like the 20th anniversary almost famous nostalgia. I don't know what to tell you what it is. <laughs> that so is like, what you would say. He's not. I mean, he's not out there like kissing babies and, and campaigning hard. That's not Billy Crudup style at all. But he has been on some almost famous retrospective like podcasts that I've listened to and stuff like that. So he's been like around. So um, I don't know. It's it's a. Uh, 
that that's a fascinating one because yeah. um, that's that that's just such a clear case of like we can't pick which of these young men from Succession <laughs> to support. I don't know how uh, you possibly. Yeah. I mean, so it's Matthew McFadden, Kieran Culkin, and Nicholas Braun Nicholas who are nominated. Yeah. Um, and I truly. I mean, I love them all so much, like my own children. Like, I just can't imagine picking between them. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't know that it's expected that Sarah Snook is going to win, which is interesting to me because she doesn't have as much competition from her own show in that category. Yeah. Um, but I think she's a- incredible. So, you know, that would yeah, be Yeah, I mean, she's, bad, but... she's up against Julia Garner, who won. She's up against yeah. Helen Bonham Carter for The Crown, which... A lot of people know... think it's Helena Bonham Carter's year yeah. for some reason. And, like, once again, I don't really... Like, that, that season of The Crown didn't seem to, like, permeate the same way that, like previous seasons did in my in my view like I liked it but I don't think I don't remember people talking about Helena Bonham Carter in that role the same way that actually they talked about Vanessa Kirby in that role yeah. and so maybe it's just like a Princess Margaret year and we're just gonna like give all the Princess Margaret actresses like <laughs> awards I don't know what to tell you but I think it helps yeah. that okay. Helena Bonham Carter has that one standalone episode of that season of The Crown. Yeah. yeah where true. she's like meeting the young man and taking him to the pool party and all that stuff. And she just gets to be kind of horrible and fabulous for an hour, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that is easier for people, who, Academy voters who have to watch a ton of things, if they can really zero in on that one episode and get kind of a full story of this character and performance, that really helps a lot, I think. It's just also insane that so many of these categories, like there's eight nominees in both of the supporting actors categories. <laughs> so it's really, I mean, on, on some level, I'm like, yeah, just give more people awards. Like I, I'm, I'm fine with recognizing more people, but it just also makes it like so hard to juggle it all in your brain. I'm pretty curious about a big star-studded category, which is lead actor in a movie or limited series. Yeah. Um, you know, I love Hugh Jackman in Bad Education. I think he's maybe slightly favored to win, but then you have a lot of support from Mark Ruffalo in I Know This Much Is True and HBO miniseries that really did not catch fire at all um, this spring, summer. I can't even remember. I reviewed it, but I don't remember when it came out. Spring, um, yeah. And, and, and so you know, Jeremy Irons for Watchmen is bandied about some. But I'm seeing, I'm looking at Gold Derby right now, like Paul Mezcal from yeah, uh, Normal, Normal People, people. has like a, like se- like several people think he's going to win. And that would be an interesting upset for because he's not a, a movie star like the other guys. But also because Hulu had such a shaky nominations here because other shows did well, but like The Great totally tanked, you know, yeah. and I think that would be really like a nice feather in their cap as they are absorbed by the Disney machine and, and maybe repurposed, who knows, for for that show to break out in such a big way and would, you know, like awards often do, solidify a star's rise. That's a big question about, you know, I just last week watched FX chief John Landgraf give like a, you know, his sort of state of the union address over zoom, which was really weird. Uh, having being used to seeing him give it in person at TCA and, uh, the idea of like Hulu and FX on Hulu and what's going on. Like most of my favorite shows that came out last year were actually on like Hulu or FX on Hulu shows. Um, I think they have really strong slate. I think they have some sort of, they have a brand recognition. I'm not going to call it a problem, but like they're figuring it out. You know what I mean? But FX similarly had a, you know, we're used to be that FX would, you know, be such a heavy hitter at the Emmys. And like this year we're not, predicting a lot of big wins for fx at all yeah um 
you know, Watchmen looks like it's going to clean up in in the limited series categories. And so what's going on? Uh, Like FX and FX and Hulu uh, put out like some great stuff. But once again, I I really feel like it's going to be like their powers combined when they figure out a way to merge in a way that makes sense for everyone involved. Because I feel like Hulu's content is drifting closer and closer to FX quality. Uh, you know, normal people I love the great. And that's, I love like, that's high, a compliment. High saying that Hulu yeah. Oh, yeah. is leveling up to FX quality. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, like, I think there's going to come a point when it makes sense that there isn't as much of a valley between those two brands. Not yeah. to sound like a marketer, but like there isn't as much of a valley. You know, so like Hulu won't give that like lime green streamer sort of um, is that actually going to be good response that you might have before because it'll have that like FX gloss that's now associated with it and stuff like that. Yeah. So I don't know. That's just something I'm thinking about. And I think all of that for all of that, the narrative of Paul Mescal is only helpful. So in, in the same way that Handmaid's Tale winning the year that Thrones took off a couple years ago was huge for Hulu. Yeah. Because yeah. that's what they started to chase was like, oh, we can succeed in this Handmaid's Tale realm. Like, let's chase that level of, of quality um, going forward. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm realizing that because it's Irish, his name is probably not pronounced Mezcal, which is what I was saying. Sorry. No, I think you're saying it right. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know that I'm saying it that differently, but yeah. Mez- okay. Well, maybe it's Mescal. Mescal, Paul. I mean, he's just the best. I love him, and I wish nothing but the best for him. So I would be thrilled uh, to see him win that award. I mean, you can imagine, like, if, you know, Mrs. America would have been the runaway best limited right. series, which in many ways is, the, like, the most prestigious Emmy some year, if it weren't for Watchmen, which is, you know, one of the best things to be on television in years. Um, so it's, like, almost just, like, bad luck that Mrs. America happened to go up against this kind of competition. Uh, yeah. And that it has so many actresses who are all competing and supporting actress, um, you know, against each other effectively. Um, and then Kate Blanchett has to go up against Regina King, who's just going to win. And that's, you know, it's, it's exciting to see them compete against each other, but I'm not sure it's totally a competition. Regina King could have a really interesting seven months. Yeah. <laughs> I would you know? love yeah. this for her. Between this and One Night Miami, it's like she, I mean, she's already one of the most like awards bedecked actors working right now. Right, right, um, right. But like she's going to add at least one piece of hardware to that tally in the next few months, which is, yeah. um, she's had a what, a, what a run she's had in the past few years. Yeah. And like it's just hard to imagine like seeing Regina King's name on your ballot, not being like, oh, yeah, I want to give her an award. Like everyone wants to give Regina and, King and, everything. And, and deserved. I mean, she's so yeah. good on Watch, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah. It's not like Tony Shalhoub winning all these times for Monk, where people were just like, eh, check the box. Because Regina King keeps winning for different things. I know, yes, it's wild. Exactly, exactly. Um, I was looking at the supporting actor and movie limited series category, where uh, there's three actors from Watchmen nominated. And like, again, in a similar way to Succession, a little different. It's kind of hard to know who to vote for, although Louis Gossett Jr., I think, would have an edge. But I only watched two episodes of Hollywood, but I swear to God, if Jim Parsons wins over the actors on Watchmen, I'm not going to be very happy. <laughs> Sorry, Jim Parsons. You have many Emmys. Uh, I hope that you were proud of your work. You don't need this one. uh, One of the critics groups I'm a part of, uh, the Gay and Lesbian Entertainment Critics Association, although I think that name is in the process of shifting. Anyway, uh, the TV awards were announced actually on like streaming television uh, on Sunday. And um, Jim Parsons was nominated, Katie, but did not win. So Mm. who won? He didn't win with his own people. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the that category is tricky because of the three Watchmen actors, but um, I'm intrigued to see how it pans out. And I mentioned this in in like a meeting we had last week, but I have I like I have to stay on brand and say it, which is that if Watchmen wins and if Damon Lindelof wins, this will be his first Emmy 
since he won for the first season of Lost 15 years ago. That's crazy. And it's just like, you know, the Lost had a big finale anniversary this year. Um, I know that like Damon Lindelof, uh, you know, I think was unfairly sort of maligned uh, for the Lost finale and then like sort of clawed his way back, uh, getting a lot of, um, you know, prestige gloss for The Leftovers, uh, which is an extraordinary piece of work. I watched The Leftovers. I just watched The Leftovers finale sometimes. It's just something I do. Yeah, same. Um, yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so for him to come back and like probably win for Watchmen this Sunday, uh, it, you know, I just I think that's a beautiful story. So I'm excited for him. He gave a very nice speech at the the gay TV awards on Sunday, oh. actually, because oh, he, nice. he won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just looked up Regina King's Emmy stats, and I would love to know who she if she wins for Watchmen, which we expect her to. It will be uh, she will have four acting Emmys as four different characters, and I would love to know who else has done that because that is not an easy thing to do, right? Because Julia Louis Dreyfus has a, has a ton, but like. For what three, three characters? Yeah, I would say three. Well, yeah. and she won. You know, two of them are for American Crime, but that's an anthology series, so she was two different people. Anyway, uh, fascinating Emmy run. When Regina King kept winning for American Crime, which was not like a show that a lot of people were talking about in that way, that's when I was like, "This lady cannot lose," which I <laughs> yeah. which I support, which I'm here for. But I, I mean, it's just like, yeah, oh, I'm excited. I'm excited for the Watchmen celebration victory yeah. lap. Um, I hope they're all know. potted together, like all like sixty people. <laughs> <laughs> We're nominated for Watchmen. Should we mention that the Creative Arts Emmys happened? Uh, yeah. I mean, I didn't look at much of the winners. Uh, Nicole Byer hosted a... Uh, well, they're like ongoing. A, they're hoping every they're night. They're ongoing, right. Yeah. Um, but but the first round of them happened on Monday night. We're recording on a Tuesday. And of the some of the winners announced, I, I was it was interesting to see that Leia Remini's Scientology show won for best non-scripted hosting or something like that, hmm. uh, which is great for Leia Remini, but also like... Hollywood pushing back against Scientology. Yeah. Uh, that was kind it. of interesting. And <laughs> Cheer won for a direction thing, um, which oh, I thought exciting. was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. like a documentary like that where it's like filmed over so much time and like in the room with those people, that that's an interesting directing challenge. Yeah. And Drag Race won for editing, which I hadn't really thought about that as anything more complicated than editing is already complicated but as some uh greg elwood uh pointed out on on twitter that like they had to edit out around an entire contestant who was rightfully canceled right before the show started to air the season started to air oh uh and they so they cut him out as thoroughly as possible while still maintaining the narrative flow of the show uh which is like okay yeah give that person an emmy because it it totally worked um (laughs) so i don't know i just feel like the the broader that tv gets the more the creative arts emmys offer like and maybe they probably always did offer interesting narratives, but it's just easier to pay attention to them now, especially when like Nicole Byer is hosting, you know. It's also where you get like really odd, like Taylor Swift has an Emmy. You know what I mean? Like that's how people uh, not, get EGOT a lot, I feel like. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, and I like, I, I'm pretty sure the creative arts Emmys have not always been like a five night thing. Like they've been on a single night, but I like no, this. Right, They're yeah. kind of like spreading it out and like really allowing you to be like, huh, okay, queer I won an Emmy last night. Good to know. Yeah, I think that's just part of like, how they're trying to cope with like the weird new normal that is award season. You know what I mean? Katie, are you saying the Oscars should be a week? Yeah. Oh God. And I've been on the record about this many times. Like if the Oscars are eight hours long um, and streamed only on YouTube, I'd be delighted. So yeah, weeks, a week of Oscars sounds great to me. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. 
Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Okay, so now let's listen to my conversation with Devon Franklin, who is a film producer and a you know, longtime executive at various studios, as well as a Academy governor, and was really instrumental in pushing for the inclusivity standards at the Oscars, which we talked about in more detail last week. Um, I found it really interesting that he you know, acknowledged both the people who think it was you know, stifling creative freedom and also people who argued it didn't go far enough. Um, and he kind of acknowledged both of those sides and basically said, you know, we had to start with somewhere and we had to do something, um, which I thought was really a, a good stance for him to take. So let's listen to that conversation. So Devon Franklin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to talk about um, the new inclusivity standards for the Academy. I assume it's been a really exciting couple days for you since, uh, since this was all announced. Uh, Yes. Exciting and tiring and uh, you know, sleepless, but you know, we've been working on this for some time. So I'm beyond excited that we've been able to put this out and, and, uh, you know, now it's out in the world and the response, you know, has been what we've expected. Um, and it's really gratifying to finally have been able to accomplish this. There were moments when I was like, I don't know if this is going to happen. It's such a, a difficult thing to do, but thankfully here we are on the other side of it. Yeah, I wanted to know how, just for you personally, how long have you been uh, an Academy governor and maybe had something like this in mind or kind of wanted to make this kind of forward progress? Yeah, I've been an Academy governor for just for a year. Okay. Um, before that, you know, I mean, I was a member, but I was chairing the A2020 initiative for the past year before uh, serving as a governor. And that's basically overseeing, you know, our diversity and inclusion initiative at the time. And that had started even before I became a member And so, you know, serving in that capacity and really helping, um, you know, this effort of how to become more inclusive as an organization that really um, helped me tremendously. You know, it really was like one of those things where I saw like, okay, got it. You know, there is a way to help the institution to serve, um, to really make a contribution. And so from that, that is really what laid the foundation for me. Once they asked me, you know, to become a, a governor at large, I, you know, immediately accepted and thought it was a great opportunity to continue that service. And, you know, working on these standards was a part of it. Um, you know, I do believe that, you know, it's one of those things that sometimes you have to believe it, you have to work, you know, within the system in order to get it done. But, um, you know, starting, you know, before as a governor now and being a part of this process, it has been um, unbelievable. You know, because, you know, when I started, it wasn't like I said, oh, I want to go, you know, this is the contribution. I didn't know what the contribution was other than just being open to serve. Mm-hmm. The way that um, the re- the announcement of these inclusivity standards, um, that announcement referenced Oscars So White specifically. And that's been, you know, been a really visible campaign for anyone who follows the Oscars and then watching the membership expand kind of immediately after that. But from the way you're talking, it sounds like the membership expansion was one big step, but there's been a ton of other conversations happening behind the scenes for oh. many years before any of us saw these announcements. Um, you know, it's been, a, it's been a team effort. There have been so many people behind the scenes, you know, the Academy staff and uh, other governors and members that have been working tirelessly and fearlessly around, uh, you know, this issue. And so, you know, just being able to now announce these standards uh, really just represents the work that's been ongoing. And to your point, you know, Oscar's so white, um, you know, that happened, you know, years ago, and that certainly was a catalyst without a doubt. 
to stimulate tremendous change within the organization. Uh, you know, yet once that, that catalyst happened, the organization has been doing this work and taking it very seriously and has made it one of the pillars, you know, of what we really stand for. When, when you say working fearlessly, what is some of the fear that you think either has to be overcome or like comes from people outside that you kind of have to set aside to push forward on something like this? Yeah, I mean, listen, fear, anytime you're changing, uh, we all face that fear no matter what it is. Like, you know, if we're experiencing a new job or we gotta go, you know, get a new new place to, to live, wherever there's change, there's fear. So, you know, th- you know being a part of the academy and uh, us navigating this has been no exception. So some of the fear is, are we gonna get it wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, some of the fear is what's gonna be the criticism. Some of the fear is uh, how will we be perceived? Some of the fear is, you know, uh, when you're charting a course for the future, it's very easy to look back to see how you got there. It's much harder to say, okay, here's where we need to go, but we aren't sure exactly if the path we're taking is gonna get us there. Uh, There was a lot of fear of, you know, well, look, this organization has, you know, this institutional knowledge and memory, and we've done things a certain way. What happens if we do things slightly different? And so these are some of the fears that we all had to face, that we had to talk through, that we had to uh, work through. And and when I say fearlessly, I mean to take this on specifically, you know, um, these new standards for best picture. To take it on requires a certain fearlessness because, again, the Academy has been around for nine decades. (laughs) This is the first time in the history of the Academy where a change of this nature has ever happened. So it did require some fearlessness on the part of, of all of us that were involved and, you know, and our CEO, Don, and our president, David, and so many other to take this on and to say, you know what, we, we want to be on the right side of this. We want to be on the right side of history. Uh, we want to be a part of the change that we want to see in, the, in this industry. And as a result, we want to take a leadership position and we're going to do it by doing what we can do, which is to, you know, affect change uh, around our, our, our standards. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of detail in the announcement, I think, really indicates how much thought process went into this. And you guys have said in other interviews that you really, you know, you talk to studio heads and producers and I'm sure a ton of other people. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what that process was, like who all you had to check in with on all these steps to make sure that it was both accomplishable and also setting the standard high enough? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a good question. It wasn't so much check in with. It was really about constituency. It was really about community. Uh, and what I mean by that is that sometimes, you know, our organization has had a, a, a history of announcing things that will affect the industry. And then the industry finds out about it in the press announcement. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then the industry is like, wait, what? Huh? How's this going to work? Da, 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 da. So we made a concentrated effort to uh, not do that. Changing these standards affects everyone that, that is making movies. So the goal was one. You know, the BFI was really the foundation for which we, you know, they created the foundation and we use that foundation to modify the standards for our purpose. So one, it was really understanding from the BFI what worked, what didn't work, what were some of the challenges and understanding those challenges as we began to to craft our set of uh, inclusion standards. The other part of it was, you know, really internally for us coming to an agreement of like, okay, this is what we want to do and then this is how we want to do it. Now let's figure out the way to go about that. And once we got the standards to a place where we felt like, okay, this represents our intent of inclusion, not exclusion, then we began the process of building constituency. And so we started that constituency with many majors and majors, and then we went to the guilds. 
You know, we went to the writers uh, guild, we went to the producers guild, we went to the directors guild, and we had all these different meetings. And again, we, we talked about the standards, we got feedback. So building this constituency was critical so that now as these standards are out, um, you know, there is really a lot of support in the community for them. Uh, the, the beauty of, of being able to build that constituency before announcing was that uh, we got that feedback early. I mean, there was a tremendous, to your point, a lot of work and time and effort and consideration to make sure that these standards were representative of the intent. Now, they are not perfect, right? They're not. <laughs> but we didn't want perfection to get in the way of progress. And that yeah. was something that was really important for us. We we're like, you know what? We're never, especially first time out, going to be able to please everybody. Some are going to say they go too far. Some are going to say they don't go far enough. We understand. But we've got to get started because if we are to be the industry and the organization that looks like the world, then we've got to take a step in the direction where the world already is. Yeah. I mean, you've said that there, these ideas have been in the work for a long time, but can you give a rough timeline on these standards specifically? Like, when did the real work start? When were these conversations with people happening? Like, how, how long did that really take? You know, I'd have to go back and, and check, but myself, I mean, I know myself uh, and Lorenza Munoz, who is our head of membership, um, you know, we started having some of these really early preliminary conversations over a year ago. Mm -hmm. But then the acceleration of this really took place after we had our board meeting in June, where the board voted to undertake these changes, um, you know, for Best Picture. And then, you know, between June and, you know, the announcement, which was, you know, just a few days ago, we have been working, you know, around the clock on refining these standards and workshopping these standards and building that constituency. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to think specifically about the announcement in June that these standards were coming, you know, it was kind of kept under um, wraps a little bit, but the timing of it was pretty significant, you know, as these global protests around equality were going on. And did those protests change the tone of the way you guys were talking about it or your industry meetings where people maybe who might have been skeptical were like, okay, no, now is the time, like we have the momentum to make this actually happen? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's no doubt. I mean, again, we have been talking about it. It had been something that we were, you know, um, pondering. But, you know, the protests, you know, around, you know, so much of the injustice that we have seen against people of color, but specifically black men and women um, at many times at the hands of the police, that absolutely was a catalyst for change. And that absolutely gave more momentum, because I think what really happened when you when everyone saw those videos, it was like, no, 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 we have to be a part of the world that we want to see. We cannot do anything that even inadvertently seems to be complicit with the dehumanization of people that are from underrepresented groups. I mean, thinking about the way that the rules work, and I think a lot of people have pointed this out, that like the vast majority of Best Picture nominees in recent years would, would qualify under the, the standards set up. But to me, it seems like a, a goal of it, not only to set the standards, but to make people think about it. So that when you are making your movie and you are staffing your movie, if you have to write it all down of who you have on your team, you maybe say, oh, wow, I didn't realize we had all white men in this one department. Let's change that. Is that, is that what you guys are aiming for? Not to, not to exclude people, but just to get everyone to pause a second and look at who they've surrounded themselves with. Yeah, and this is in uh, yes, and so I want to take I want to answer because you said two things that I want to <laughs> hit on, um, and and I think this is the this is the interesting thing, right? Not to exclude people, right? So whenever we talk about inclusion, inadvertently this idea of exclusion comes up, and it's and it's like, well, wait a minute, we want to make sure that every person in this business that is excellent gets an opportunity to work, 
and gets consideration for their work. No matter who they are, no matter where they are, we want to be an industry that is inclusive. And it blows my mind because the status quo has been what it has been for, for so long that whenever the word inclusive comes out, it automatically, some people think, oh, it's going to exclude some. Well, who's it going to exclude? And to your point, yes, it, it's even though we understand that for some, the rules didn't, you know, the standards didn't go far enough, we get it. But you just hit on something that's exactly what we also want, which is the thought process. Because so often, again, I've been in this business for, I've been in this business for 24 years. I started at 18 years old uh, as an intern for the company that managed Will and Jada and, you know, all the P. Diddy and Jennifer Lopez, right? So I started from the bottom. Didn't know anybody in, in entertainment at all. Started at 18, unpaid internship, worked my way up, you know, became a studio executive for, you know, Sony for 10 years and now been producing for five. So I've seen, you know, every step of this business and every side of this business. And what I can tell you is there are qualified people from underrepresented groups, people of color, women, LGBTQ+, uh, hearing impaired and disabled. There are qualified people from underrepresented groups that don't make the list. Why? Because people end up working with who they know, who they're comfortable with. And so these relationships create business that sometimes span decades. And so you can be incredibly qualified, but if you're not a part of the group, you may never get the opportunity to consistently work and get that work considered. So the standards, we hope, will produce the opportunity for more conversation, more consideration, more saying, hey, wait, 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 wait. You know what? We are working with the same people. Who else do we know who we don't know that, that should get consideration? Who, who else should we bring in here that can bring a different perspective? Because the more we are inclusive, the more this business can survive. Yeah. Well, you talking about starting as an intern makes me think of standard C and the new standards, which I think is yes. a it's a little easy to overlook if you're just a moviegoer because it's not something you're going to see on screen. But it seems like, you know, emphasizing internships and training opportunities uh, is to lead to exactly like the trajectory that you had. Like you you bring someone in when they're 18 and you start, you know, not just having all white men uh, as the interns on your set. Like that can make such a huge difference in 20 years. Like, I mean, can you talk about why that was such a key platform of, of this process? Yeah, be um, because one of the biggest issues that that we have, um, you know, we keep hearing from studios and, and a lot of our constituents that we've met with is a pipeline issue. You know, there's a point of view that there aren't enough, you know, underrepresented apprentices and internships in the pipeline because Hollywood is an apprenticeship business. You do learn by doing. It's very hard for someone who has not had an experience in Hollywood to come into Hollywood and become successful. Not impossible, but it's hard because you kind of learn from the bottom up. And so part of this was to address the pipeline. Let's make sure that every studio, every financier has meaningful, rigorous internships and, and apprenticeship programs that are able to train up the next generation of executives, the next generation of crew, the next generation of producers. And so, yes, I am a product of, of, intern, of an internship, an internship program. You know, I interned my four years of going to USC. So I started as a freshman and I interned all four years and that laid the foundation. I mean, my internship, I can do a direct line between the internship and me talking to you right now. Every single opportunity that I've ever had in this business goes back to the internship. Now, it had a lot to do with what I did with it, but having the opportunity to intern was critical. And so providing that opportunity for others to be able to understand how this business works, to really get a shot, 
is critical. It's critical to the lifeblood. It's critical to enhancing the pipeline and hopefully solving uh, that problem. And that's why we wanted to make sure the standard seat was in there because it's very easy to say, oh, let's do, you know, specifically just to the movies, right? Well, if we only did the movies and we're not addressing the infrastructure of the business, uh, then we could ultimately create another problem that mm -hmm. to your point, you know, 10 and 20 years down the road, because we haven't addressed the pipeline, there may not be, you know, all of those that we want in the pipeline in order to give consideration to. So, you know, I think internships are valuable. Um, you know, I mean, and I've learned, I mean, truly, I've learned from the best people in this business. I mean, you know, working for, you know, Will Smith and James Lasseter and Benny Medina and Elizabeth Cantilla and Amy Pascal and Doug Belgrad and Anji and Eddie, like, I am truly a product of internship and apprenticeship as a black man navigating um, the Hollywood, you know, studio system. There are just things I didn't know. You know, I didn't know certain lingo. I didn't know, you know, I'm not, I'm, I didn't go to school where some of the others may have gone to school. Like, so I'm coming in completely fish out of water. Having that mentorship from those executives that I just named helped me understand how to navigate the business. And so my hope is that these standards for those that really embrace them in our business, that it will produce a greater spirit of how do I teach and pass on what I know to not just those that look like me, but those that don't, because that's the real power of this business. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now if I did not have people in my life that didn't look like me, but they said, we see the potential. We want to help you. So they, they, I mean, listen, they would tell me the good and the bad. Like, yo, you, that was great what you did in that meeting. That was terrible what you did. Don't say that again. Don't do that. And guess what? Thank you. Thank you for keeping it real. Because if you don't keep it real, I can't actually grow. So long answer to your question, I do believe in, in standard C. And I do think that's one of the standards that can produce long lasting change that just won't be evident in this moment. But over time, it will. I think standard C is also, you know, among, there's been, a, you know, criticism from all sides on this and, you know, some valid, some not, but I have seen people kind of use that as an example of maybe how this could be harder on independent productions that like don't have the budget for a train internship program or something like that. And for many of the interviews you guys have done, it sounds like there, you know, it's, it's not something that is meant to, you know, kind of like bash a smaller production over the head. Like it, it's not, you know, unmanageable for a small, you know, production company to get around. In the meetings that we did, we met with all you know, independence, we met with all major studios, uh, no independent studio flagged this as, as a hardship, mm -hmm. not one. And we met with, um, you know, the, the wide majority of independent companies that are distributing a good majority of the independent content, um, you know, out there. So we, we don't view it as a hardship. Uh, it may be in some cases, that's why there's flexibility with the standards. You know, you only have to meet two of the four and if for yeah. some reason you can't qualify, for C, you have three other standards you can meet. So we, we were considerate of that. And we felt like in the um, recon that we did prior to formalizing the standards that we got enough recon to tell us that it was doable. And here's the reality. It will stretch. There is a stretch here. There is a stretch of thought, of mentality, of consideration. And so um, we understand that. And that's, that's where the growth comes. As, a, as an Academy member, you know, you're in this, this organization that, you know, there are always going to be people like, who watches the Oscars? They're only, you know, movies for old people and then people who are constantly criticizing the Oscars for not going far enough. And when you're in an organization like this that is 90-something years old, that has the ability to, like, do something this major, when you change the rules for Best Picture in this way, like, what is the kind of symbolic power that you feel like you have? Like, what is, what is the, 
the path forward that you think you're giving for the industry as a whole? Well, I mean, look, if, if the goal is like, so the organization was created by Louis B. Mayer um, back in 1929 with the one goal of advancing film, advancing the film industry. That was why, you know, the, <laughs> the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was created. So when you look at where we are now, 90, over 90 years later, and you talk about advancing, how can you advance the film industry without inclusion? And, and the Oscars, no matter you know, what people say and all the, the comments, still represents what Hollywood is about. And for too long, the Oscars have represented what Hollywood is about in that it has not always been representative and inclusive of everyone who makes great work. The Academy has a history of overlooking people from underrepresented groups for art that not only is excellent, but above excellent. And so to your point, you know, this is a part uh, as much as in practice and will help change things. It's also symbolism that we as an academy are not what we were. This is who we are and aspire to be. All right. Well, we have listeners to this podcast who are Oscar obsessed just as we are. Is there anything else you want to make sure everybody knows about these standards or, or, yeah, Oscar I, season or I, anything else? Yes. I would encourage anyone listening right now. Just make sure you read the standards. Take them in. Don't let the headline be your headline. You know, sometimes you see a headline and you react to the headline. Read the standards. You'll see. These standards are about creativity. They are about expanding the definition of excellence. They are about inclusion, not exclusion. Um, it really allows for all different types of films to be made and all different types of people uh, to get work. It's not about, uh, you know, restricting content and what can get made. You'll see that there are so many ways that a production company or a studio or a financier can, uh, can meet these standards. And, and again, these standards are all about uh, being inclusive in the future and uh, really making sure that this business represents the audience that it serves. I mean, let's be honest. If audiences from underrepresented groups stop going to the movies, we, all of us in the movie business will be out of business. <laughs> and so uh, let's just be honest about that. And so if you're listening, if you have not taken in the standards, read them, take them in. You'll see that there's a lot of flexibility here. For those of us, for those of you that listen and see, well, you didn't go too far. We understand. We agree. But we had to get started somewhere. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for talking to me. I think you have the greatest job in the world to be able to be within the Oscars and make all this stuff happen. <laughs> It is great. Thank you. Okay, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. We're going to do a special post-Emmys episode on Monday, so look out for it early next week. We'll be kind of processing whatever it is that happens on this year's Emmys. Uh, it's kind of a mystery, which is a little exciting. Um, in the meantime, you can go to VanityFair.com. You'll find our Emmys predictions, which will be up, and also uh, mine and Richard's continued coverage of Toronto and lots more. Uh, and you can find us all on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this and Richard Rylas. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs and this week's award for the best title for the Beanie Feldstein limited series that will win all the Emmys next year goes to Joanna Robinson. The titular woman. You come to the New Yorker radio hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.